Welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Pianko. Today's guest is Adam Toombs. Adam is studying the role of the international wildlife trade and its effects on biosecurity in Australia. Adam Toombs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to finally have you on. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. So I just want to preface this one for the audience that a lot of the things we're going to talk about today are going to build on episode three of the podcast that we had with Dr. Chris Shepard. That's right. Um, Today's conversation is once again about the international trade in wildlife. Um, but from your perspective, so first of all, let's let's hear a bit about yourself, Adam. Uh, yep. So I moved to Adelaide from Yorkshire in the UK about six years ago. I did my whole undergraduate here, honours here, and stayed on to do a PhD project in the same lab I did honours, which is slightly unusual these days. Um, and was very much excited by the idea of studying the wildlife trade this being an issue that is very, very current and very, very emergent. And as an ecologist, I was so sick of studying problems that were created 100 years ago or, or longer and having to deal with the, the historic legacy of these issues, whereas the wildlife trade is causing problems now, but it's not nearly as bad as it's going to be 30 years from now. So I was really excited by the prospect of studying something like that. I guess this is like the old adage, uh, a gram of prevention is worth a kilogram of cure. Exactly. So I feel like this is one of those places where, you know, you're really on the quote unquote front line of a problem and addressing it at its root before it takes hold. That's right. And Australia is a nation that is more on board with that principle than others, I would say. I mean, that, that is sort of the ethos of biosecurity generally, which Australia heavily invests in, Australia and New Zealand in particular. So just give a shout out to your lab. Who are you working with? I'm working with the Invasion Science and Wildlife Ecology Group here in the University of Adelaide, part of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Cool. And your specific study, what are you looking at? So my PhD is centred around the biosecurity risk of the international wildlife trade within Australia. So that is the domestic trade within Australia of non-native or alien species. Uh, I have a particular interest or focus around alien vertebrate species, looking at the potential for those species to become invasive if they were accidentally released or deliberately released into the wild from captivity. A lot of those species being illegally held in captivity. Mm. And there is a little bit of a historic aspect to the pet trade. Or the, the wildlife trade in Australia, where you know people have been keeping non-native species as pets for probably since they came here. I mean, rabbits and foxes. I mean, they're not necessarily pets, but dogs and cats definitely. Yes. Um, so, how does the historic legacy of the kinds of things we kept, sort of pre-internet? I guess we can probably define this issue pre and post-internet because that might be one of the sort of crux factors on you know a big shift in how this market worked. So yep. yeah, give us a little bit of a, a background here. Yeah, so the internet has transformed the wildlife trade. Uh, it's completely globalized, 
both the the trade itself so getting a particular animal to and from one location but also it's globalized which species fall under the spotlight uh you know take slow lorises for an example no one knew what a slow loris was 10 years ago and a few videos on instagram of slow lorises being tickled and almost overnight there's an emergent trade in slow lorises which is a leading threatening process of, of that species and so it's like an african primate it's more african primate right? correct yeah um so so yeah the internet has a an enormous role to play in the future of the wildlife trade. With respects to Australia's history with exotic pets, um, I would say particularly with the aviculture trade, uh, there are a number of species that were historically uh, bred in Australia that are non-native. Um, and a lot of those species are legal to possess in Australia. There are, a lot of them are no longer legal to continue importing here. What about breeding? Can you breed these species? And what are some of these uh, birds? So uh, a really prominent example uh, is something called the Indian ringneck parrot, which is also called the rose ring parakeet. That's actually um, a very popular bird just in the global aviculture trade. I believe its traditional uh, distribution was sort of in the Middle East and parts of sub-Saharan Africa, whereas now it's been introduced in other parts of the Middle East, in North America, in Singapore, in Japan, and we occasionally find individuals in Australia. In the wild, you're talking about? In, in the wild, So all correct. those places you listed there, listed there are wild populations? In most of them, there are established populations. Yeah. In Australia, there's no definitive evidence of an established population, mm -hmm. but we do find free-living individuals in the wild mm. fairly frequently. Right, whether or not they're breeding and reproducing. Exactly, yeah. whether or not those are independent releases from mm -hmm. captivity, that's for, for us to determine and decide. Yeah. Right. And so some of the animals that were brought here before, you know, the spotlight effect and how the internet has made the, the trade more accessible to people... What are some of those animals that were, you know, maybe here in the 70s or 80s? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I would say with respect to reptiles, mm -hmm. some of the species that have historically already had a bit of a radiation in popularity would be things like the radiate slider turtle. Yeah, and these, a, have ex these have extant wild populations in Australia. So the, the radiate slider turtle does have two known established populations in Australia that are being currently managed. Mm -hmm. So it's not considered to be invasive in Australia currently because it, it isn't spreading beyond that introduced range. Mm -hmm. Having said that, just like the rosewing parakeet, there are independent um, right. wild radiant slider tails popping up. It, last year there were three in, a in Adelaide, for wow. example. And these animals are illegal to keep, right? Specifically the radiate so, slider. So, yeah, f the, the thing that m separates the radiate slider from the rosewing parakeet is that it is completely illegal to possess, breed, import radiate sliders into Australia. Right. There's no legality surrounding that, unless it's for very specific purposes, like for display purposes. If you're a zoo uh, or some okay. sort of organisation, that's the exception to the rule. Right. Yeah, so so I imagine there's a grey market. There must be a grey market, if not an outright black black market here, where if there are independent releases you know, that have been going on since the 80s, surely someone somewhere in Australia is breeding these animals. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
in my professional opinion, that is highly likely to be the case. Um, we just finished a study which sort of marked the, the introduction to the PhD project where we looked at uh, a historic data set from 1999 until 2016, looking at what we have actually been intercepting both in the wild and from captivity in terms of non-native vertebrates. And by far the most popular species is the radiated slide turtle. Mm. There's over 500 individuals in that data set, representing hundreds of separate incidents, essentially. And we're actually seeing a, an increase in the number of at-large detections of this species. Right. We're seeing a decrease in the number of smuggling detections of species such as radiated slide turtles, but also other species like corn snakes and boa constrictors. Those sorts of species that used to be the uh, the hot new, hot new thing in the reptile trade, but are no longer the sort of old news. Yeah. There's a quite consistent trend where the number of sm smuggling detections decreases, but the number of captive and at-large detections is actually continuing to increase. And what that suggests is that they're no longer being smuggled into the country, but that there's actually established yeah. um, breeders in Australia. And that's where people are acquiring these pets from. They're actually acquiring them domestically, which from a sort of uh, risk-to-reward ratio point of view makes a lot more sense than continuing to smuggle them into a country which has actually very stringent biosecurity. Right. It might be worth um, taking a, a couple of minutes to sort of just give us the framework of the laws around keeping and importing pets in Australia. Yep. So Australia, like many other countries around the world, is bound by CITES, which was mentioned in Chris's episode. It's the Convention for the International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. I didn't get that right in that episode. Oh, you, you were pretty close. It, it, <laughs> I tried it's, so hard. Like most of these big um, sort of government organizations, it's a bit of a mouthful, but once you get around it, you get used to it. Um, Australia is bound by CITES, but... Australia actually implements regulations at the border that are far beyond those obligations. Australia has exceptional regulations when it comes to import. So, for example, almost no um, alien, amphibians and reptiles are legal to import into Australia, other than the exception that I mentioned earlier. Yep. There are a number of bird species from the aviculture trade that you can import. However, there are dozens upon dozens that you cannot. Mm -hmm. um, and then probably tight regulations on the ones that do come in, like where they're going, how many there are, their sex, etc. That's no? the surprising part. Oh, wow. Actually. Okay. So, so let's take the, the ringneck parrot again. Only, to the best of my knowledge, only Western Australia and Tasmania have regulations about the domestic movement of oh, okay. that species. So once it's in, for the rest of those states, it's in. I could go on my phone right now and buy 50... Indian ringneck parrots and do what you like with without them. a permit yeah um, so that that's an interesting lack of surveillance mm. I would say once they're here domestically mm -hmm. then then that's that surveillance doesn't doesn't continue whereas with, with our own native species some of our threatened native species we have very tight permit systems and we know exactly where they're being kept where they're being bred etc so that's very interesting uh, I think it's the reason why we don't have that is the logistical challenge. There are so many Indian ringneck parrots in this nation yeah. that the amount of funding it would take to set up a permit system 
and the amount of potential backlash from people who already own these species is a massive barrier to having that in place. So you will find a bit of inconsistency between taxa in terms of how tightly regulated things are. Hmm. And I think that has, my personal opinion, is that that has a lot to do with the, the social climate in terms of how much of a hobbyist culture is mm. already existing around that taxa mm-hmm. at the time of wanting to implement a, a piece of sort of restrictive legislation, let's Interesting. say. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. One other thing that I'm always curious about, and I think I asked Chris this question, and I don't know if I got a particularly fleshed out answer, what is it, what, what biological traits does a, an organism have that make it attractive to the pet trade? You know, this is something that's always fascinated me. We have, you know, how many hundreds of, well, dozens of species of uh, parrots in Australia, and people are bringing in some other pet, like, well, I don't, I personally don't get it. I'm sure there's a reason, but what are the, what are the traits that an organism might have that make it attractive to the pet trade? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and if I can, I might actually break that into two questions from, from the biosecurity perspective. What traits make something attractive? And then also what traits make something likely to escape or be released once it's in here? That was the second part. And, 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 those, <laughs> and those are two fundamentally different things which yeah. sometimes get tied up together. Yeah. In terms of what makes it attractive, there's certainly a novelty factor. Um, and it, I guess it, this is like with Loris, right? You know, something might just be viral in the exactly, yeah, sense. yes. There's there's the virality of the the flavor of the month, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And you see that in the reptile trade, particularly with captive breeding moths, and also to a lesser extent, but still to still an extent in the um, ornamental fish trade with hybrids of certain freshwater fish as well. So the hobby is always looking for more unique morphs. You, know, you can go on the market and you'll see albino blue tongues, hypermelanistic blue tongues, mm-hmm. blue tongues from a specific locality. It, it's not enough to just possess a blue tongue. That's quite cosmopolitan. You want to be the person who has this thing that no one else has. So mm-hmm. this, I would say it's less to do with the traits in isolation and more the human perception of those traits. Yeah weird animal and that makes it really hard to model because let's say i grab i have a a data set of a bunch of species being traded and i grab a bunch of species traits and try to Mm -hmm. find some sort of relationship you might find a relationship it might be that larger species are traded more it might be the species that uh have more offspring are traded more because that's more economical and that is one thing i'm trying to investigate but there is that the aspect that is not included in that data set, which is the human perception of those traits on the value of the species. Not even to mention the actual economic aspect of... Right, how much does it cost? You know, cheaper species might yeah. be more highly traded than mm-hmm. ones that cost a million bucks. Yeah, we're looking at um, a particular website at the minute which sells different breeds of ball pythons. This is not in Australia. This is Ball in, pythons? Ball pythons, yeah. B-A-L-L. Yeah. And there's over 100,000 listings on that thing. There are dozens of different ball python morphs, some of which you can sell for $200, some for $50,000. Oh, wow. Same species. So that just goes to show, you know, they'll have very similar traits in terms of adult mass, mm-hmm. reproduction. It's the novelty that differs. Mm. And so you have this enormous spectrum of the value that we place on them. 
so it's really driven by the by the human desires in the market rather than some biological more than some biological factors that, that's that's what i would argue yeah, yeah. that's interesting not not to say that the the traits in isolation don't play a role but i think you have to consider both of those things together yeah. and the other side of this coin now you've got some animals in captivity which of the species now this is probably where biology has more of a, a role than human desire maybe i would be interested to hear your perspective but now you've got animals in captivity which are the ones that are likely to become invasive that's a really interesting question and apologies for, for keeping to keep doing this but once again you have to break that down <laughs> into two things what's the probability once it's in captivity of it being released mm -hmm. and then once it's released mm -hmm. what's the probability of it being invasive right i guess the former might have more to do with human Humans, desire exactly and the latter is almost entirely trait based yeah. so once it's released then it's things like the the age at first reproduction the breadth of climate tolerance all, mm -hmm. all those sorts of logical things that you would associate with something establishing but before that the attributes that would lead it to be released that is a very complex process um, and it's something that I think the field needs to know a lot more about uh -huh. something that the understanding is still being developed and I was working on a review a few months ago that's sort of still in the pipeline where we were talking about the difference between perception of traits and reality of traits and when that deficit is realized that's when the probability of release then increases Interesting. and there's a, a co-worker of mine has a has a paper from last year looking at escape probab uh, release probability in the US and they found that the more commonly imported a species is and the lower its market value the higher the chance of it being released right and i guess this is almost like the flip side of the novelty one right it's like oh there's a million of these they're you know a dime a dozen I'm, i can't sell it into the local park yeah or very, very much very much so which is really concerning because let's say hypothetically a new species enters the australian market it's extremely novel not to mention probably illegal but <laughs> extremely novel everyone wants it it's very valuable no one's going to deliberately release something like that when you can make money off it mm -hmm. five years down the line everyone in the hobby has that once novel species the, the market value plummets the people who own it once as a business venture are no longer invested in it and the people who got it purely to have it for that novelty factor are no longer receiving whatever emotional or social benefit they were once getting from that species so then the escape probability starts to increase and that's when it becomes a biosecurity threat that must be very difficult to model yeah, <laughs> extremely yes. yeah i guess you need to like sort of intersect with sociology at some point right like that's what i really like about this topic is that it's not just biology in isolation yeah. you have to look at the human component as well uh, not that I'm a sociologist, so <laughs> if any sociolo sociologists want to collaborate, I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> so uh, one thing you mentioned before that um, piqued my interest, and that was the disparity between the expectation of a trait and the reality. And I feel like you know, I really wanted to get you talking about the Burmese python, even if it's just a peripheral, you know, because in Australia, people might not know about what's going on in in Florida with the Burmese python but you know my wife's American and I have like this, this bridge to the what's going yes. on in North America 
Um, and it's astounding. And I feel like this might be something that's at play there, where you have, you know, someone buys a snake, you know, how does a python, how big does a Burmese python get? You know, it can't be that big, right? And then, you know, 10 years later, they've got a bloody, you know, yep. behemoth in their, in their house. Yep. And the, the tank busters, as they call them. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. A, yeah. Um, it's all about the mismarketing of, of a species. And there are a few papers recently urging people to have more of an understanding of these species before you go and buy them. That, that is what often leads to this situation, is a somewhat uninformed purchase. So yeah, the Burmese, for context, the Burmese pythons are uh, an invasive species in the Everglades National Park in, in the state of Florida in the US. It acts as a bit of a cautionary tale for Australia because um, it's highly likely, although somewhat disputed, that those Burmese pythons originate from the um, deliberate releases into that national park, although it, that is disputed. They have completely transformed the ecosystem. Uh, the predation of the native deer is uh, and, and, other, deer. and other mammals in, in the national park is, has had profound impacts on the population levels. Um, risks to human health are also up for debate. They're undeniably breeding. Now, it was a riparian species, so it was limited mm -hmm. to the waterways within the national park. There's now some evidence that Burmese pythons in Everglades have rock python genetics in them. Now, whether that's through hybridization in the wild or whether that's through a, a secondary release Is rock of python native? Not to my knowledge, okay. but the this is another species this is an, probably from another the in the pet trade exactly. So what's possibly happened there is a secondary release of Burmese pythons, which have mm. some history of hybridizing in the pet trade with rock pythons, and the consequence of that is that they're becoming less riparian. So they're actually within the national park, spreading beyond their their range. Yeah, they might even be niche differentiating. You know, we might have two, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty pretty fascinating from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. There's another example from a completely different taxa. Uh, there's something called a flower horn cichlid, which is a freshwater fish. It's not a real species. It doesn't actually exist outside of the hobby. It's a hybrid of about four different fish. And that was released into a freshwater system in Indonesia where it's now invasive. So this this organism, which is not a recognized species, mm. is an invasive species. That's astounding. Yes. So I, I really feel like the you know, if the Burmese python is kind of like the poster child That's for right. what not to do. That's right. <laughs> and it really is astounding. I, I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, the, the numbers of, I can't remember if it was alligator or caiman, but the alligator, you know, the, the large, you know, apex predator of the system is being taken out by invasive pythons. Yes, right, the, the juvenile mortality rate is on the increase as a result of Burmese pythons. So that's right. You'd think it would be the other way around, but apparently not. They're that, apparently not. They're that voracious. Um, I'd like to share, well, before we move on to the, the next part of the conversation, um, I just wanted to share an anecdote which you, something that you showed me when I was preparing for um, the episode with Chris. So you took me down to your office, we sat down, and you were just giving me an overview of, you know, what's going on online. And you pulled up this website and you said, look, you name a species and I'll promise you it's going to be on this website. And I said, I don't know, 
pick something in an Australian endangered species, and you say, are you punched in pygmy blue tongue lizard? And just as you said, some guy in London had several of these animals for sale. So right. they were illegally taken from the wild, illegally exported, and they're for sale. And I guess like there's two things that I'm thinking about here, and this, this really shocked me. But one was how do how does how does the law change when you change borders? Once it's out of Australia, you know, because it's an endangered species, is it fair game in Europe? Or yeah, I mean, flesh this out a little bit more. Yep. So that is a major legal loophole that we're trying to bring more attention to. A lot of people are aware of it. People that I've spoken to from, for example, different government departments are aware of it. Once something is exported out of Australia, other than the international CITES legislation and the domestic legislation of whatever nation it's in, Australian law no longer applies to that species. Even though the act of removing it was illegal, Mm -hmm. if you were the third person to acquire this species outside of Australia, you are not necessarily committing a crime. Right. And that's a massive problem because who is going to openly say, oh yes, I got these directly from Australia. No, everyone is going to say these were captively bred. And 95%, 99% of the time that might actually be true. But verifying that... Yeah requires forensic methods which is incredibly expensive and whether people are willing to invest that much in 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 a particular species especially an obscure species is is debatable currently i would say um so that's a massive problem with the pygmy blue tongue example that one's a bit more clear-cut because pygmy blue tongues were only recently rediscovered in in uh, south australia um, so that that one is quite clearly of illegal origin. Yeah, there's no country. other way that yeah. exactly. But you know there are there are carpet pythons traded overseas, uh, bearded dragons. Both of those are quite likely to be legally traded, uh, or let's say they are legally traded. Let's say they have a legal origin. It's probably a better way of, of putting it. But there are other things like uh, nephrurus geckos, which are like a centralian. Uh, knobtail gecko that on that same on that same website are sold quite commonly quite a few different species from that genus are sold I have not seen any evidence yet that they were historically sold mm-hmm. but that is one thing that we need to investigate to see what sources of data are there about species that are known to be sold outside of Australia and compare that with what's happening now and see if that species pool is increasing over time because if it is, that means we have a problem. Mm. So I guess like pet traders, you know, once it's outside of Australia, you've got this plausible deniability. Exactly. Like, I, I got it from someone who got it from someone who bred it. So exactly. And, and the and the inverse is true as well. So for example, with the ornamental fish trade in Australia, there are a number of non-native fish that are not on the live import list, but are traded domestically. And that's the exact same problem of plausible deniability. Oh, I got it from a captively bred source. Who got it from a captively bred source? Mm-hmm. On and on and on. I'm not saying that anyone's a liar here. In many cases, that will actually be true. But what I'm saying is it opens the door for mm-hmm. it not to be true. Yeah. An unverified claim, essentially. In the same way that sort of Iceland is the 
the protected home of servers for like the pirate bay and things like that are there countries that have either especially unregulated or particularly prominent online markets for these kinds of things i think the website you showed me was german is germany one of these yeah. countries so germany is a huge hub for the reptile trade there is a I guess you could call it a fair or a festival called uh, Terroristic that happens... Terroristic? Terroristic, I guess. Happens about four times a year, I believe, in Germany. And people come from all over Europe and beyond for this reptile fair. That is where a lot of the trade in species from sort of far-flung places of the world takes place. So it's kind of like a gun show. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a, an expo would yeah, be, yeah, would be yeah, a yeah. more accurate description <laughs> of it. It's a reptile expo, let's say. Um, and that is where you'd be able to buy certain Australian species, species from South America, uh, species from Africa, a, a, a bit of a, a smorgasbord of, of reptiles, uh, which all, in Germany, it is not illegal to do that. No, you know. Um, unless you could prove that someone has actually acquired this from an illegal source. Which we've just discussed. Which we've just... So now we're back. Exactly. So so we're stuck in a loophole here. Um, And that's something that needs to be brought to broader attention because as amazing as our border security is, all it takes is for one thing to slip through the cracks and then we've got a problem. Now, there is a counter-argument to that, which people say, well, once it's out there in the domestic trade, it's being domestically bred overseas, is it even a conservation concern anymore because we don't need to harvest any more wild populations? And I take that point, but one problem that can arise, especially with reptiles, is that if that captive population originates from one wild harvest, Mm -hmm. the genetic diversity is incredibly low. So there's always that motivation to add more diversity into the gene pool. Also increased demand, you know. Exactly. Uh, For a species, take shinglebacks incredibly low rate of reproduction for monogamous breeding pairs and they have quite a large overseas demand at the minute and that's why we're seeing you see in the news that shinglebacks will commonly be intercepted in illegal export attempts and it's because it's not economical to captively breed them overseas because they don't breed very rapidly so for certain species it's never going to be sustainable yeah so this is a perfect segue into sort of there's two sides to this coin you have the here's a term i was really hoping to use the propagule pressure of animals being taken out of their native range and supplanted into uh, a a new non-native range you know the 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 potential alien invasive species and the exact flip side of that coin is those animals that are actually taken from their native range so this is probably not specifically the focus of your study but how much of an issue is removing animals from the wild for the pet trade i think it's more of an issue than is currently appreciated not only the act of taking the individual or sometimes large groups of individuals from the wild but the destructive act of getting to the habitat for example if you've got a species of gecko that's only in a very narrow distribution and only uses the bark of a particular tree for its habitat Mm. If people are going and collecting relatively small numbers of geckos, but relatively small numbers from 
a very particular subpopulation, that's having a disproportionately large effect on that local population, even if the total population has only taken a small hit. Uh, not to mention the actual habitat destruction that that would cause. So I think it's a big problem in Australia, particularly areas of biodiversity hotspots. I'm thinking uh, southwestern Western Australia, for example, would be an area quite vulnerable. And the wildlife officers are aware of that. I've mm -hmm. spoken to a few wildlife officers who are amazing uh, at their job and have told me of, of, of some of the things that they're intercepting. They're doing an incredible job at what they do, but Western Australia is enormous. Yes. <laughs> you know, they, they, they can, they're only human. They can only yeah. uh, monitor so much land per, per person. So for, for an area as large as Australia, I think it is a problem. Um, and it's one without a, an easy solution, in my opinion. Um, I think what needs to happen is, a, and this is going to sound a little bit vague, but we need a, a change in, in a, a cultural norms surrounding the reptile change. We, we need it to be so that going and harvesting something from the wild is not perceived to be as socially acceptable as it is currently. Mm. And I don't mean necessarily by the broader public. I mean within yeah, no. the specific yeah. groups that deal yeah. with these sorts of things. So you think it's not viewed as particularly taboo? Per my personal opinion, I, I think within certain hobbies, it's more normal relative to the general public. Yeah. I think if you... Well, and again, it's hard to look outside of my bubble. But I think that if I asked any people I know, is it okay to go out and take a lizard from the wild and trade it? they would say no but yeah. again I'm in a specific yes. very specific bubble <laughs> oh, and, and the reason why it's more socially acceptable is some of those arguments that, that I put forward earlier that well once there's a captive population then it's no longer a threat and, and there are some merits to that argument there are even people who want to set up um, legal exports of Australian captive reptiles to remove the motivation mm. to harvest and I listened to their point, but my counterpoint is what, what I said earlier about that there's always going to be that increased demand, whether it's for a different locality of the same species, whether it's for more diversity or just more of them than can be supplied legally, that's always going to be a risk. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has added on to Chris's episode nicely. Um, yes. I'm glad that we got to focus on specifically the pet trade and the internet. Um, it's two things that we didn't go into a great deal of depth with Chris's episode. But trailing off of that subject and onto a totally disparate one you are the new president for the biology society i am as yes. of last week as of last week and we we're very excited with you know thank you to james by the way um for doing a fantastic job this year and a lot of new projects got off the ground including the one we're currently participating in this that's podcast right. that's right but what have you got planned for 2020 for the society yeah well first of all just echoing what you said um, I, I was the social media officer last year and it was only when I looked at our events for 2019 that I realised how much we'd managed to do with the, with the committee we had. We've actually got an even larger committee this year, um, including someone who joined this morning. <laughs> um, well, f the, the priority for me is continuing the podcast, making sure that it has uh, a sort of sustainable framework where 
given the turnover rate of members in the biology society because we are predominantly students not entirely students that the podcast continues at a sustainable rate that's priority one but also we want to uh, change up a few things with uh, we want to have more nature walks it'd be good to have a field-based podcast episode that would be very sort of cool. a, a companion to the nature walk for anyone who can't make it they can at least get a, an audio companion um, make a few changes to things like when we have guest speakers maybe have a, a bit more of an informal roundtable format cool. in th- those sorts of talks and getting more representation in our outreach making sure that people don't just perceive us as a bunch of students from Adelaide Uni mm-hmm. which is you know is, is what <laughs> is what a number of us are but yeah. it, that's not necessarily what we're representing we're yeah. not we're not a, a student society if you will so getting that out there and collaborating i think with more of the other biology based organizations in south australia like the friends of parks yeah and this is something that i kicked off for our last walk and it was very successful i i perceived it as a, a way of introducing the society to demographics that might not have heard of us before yes which is i think it did it did exactly that on that particular walk yeah absolutely. shout out to the friends of blackie and marialto yeah they're great um did liz guide the part of the walk yeah, yeah exactly. i've met liz liz is very nice um yeah because when you look at some of those societies without trying to be rude here you look at the age demographic it's actually somewhat the inverse of ours yeah ours is predominantly young students some of these other societies are predominantly older members mm-hmm. and it does I do get a little bit concerned about the recruitment model yeah and because there's so much knowledge in these hobbyist societies unpublished knowledge that people just happen to know from their yeah. wealth of experience naturalists, naturalists exactly and so we need a, a way of uh, br- passing along that knowledge but at the same time introducing people who have the you know, renewed enthusiasm to help with some of their projects that they're currently working on as well. Bringing those two things together is, I think, could work really well. Well, definitely on the same page about all that. Thank you once again. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. This podcast was hosted by me, Bradley Bianco, and produced with my dedicated team, Christopher Jolly, Mile Tarrant, Adam Toombs, and music by Darcy Whitaker. If you'd like to support the production of this show, please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.